Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks that you are here with us by your spirit as we have gathered in the name of your son. We pray now that you would faithfully feed us from your word, that our hearts might be full and our eyes directed again towards Jesus. And seeing him, we might think more humbly of ourselves and more greatly of him, and that we might be drawn to his love in such a way that we ourselves are transformed to be loving people. Come help us do all of this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week we kicked off a short summer sermon series where we said that recently the American Bible Society here in our city of Philadelphia had done a study of the top searches in the internet of people in our city when it comes to the Bible. We said that they had done research and they had come down with about five different topics that Philadelphians, people like us, people like you and me, people we work with and live near and go to school with and Family, classmates, neighbors, friends, people like us in our city want to know, what does the Bible say about? And the five topics were these, friendship, love, forgiveness, depression, and sex. And so we said that over these five weeks, what we want to do is we want to try and answer from the scriptures what the questions are of our city. And so we looked at friendship last week, and this week we want to consider what does the Bible say about love? What does the Bible say about love? We would say that the city of brotherly love wants to know what does the scripture say about love. Now, if you sat at a computer screen and typed in Bible and love, undoubtedly at the very top of the results, there would be one passage that comes before every other one. And that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the passage that Joe just read for us. Right at the top of your screen as the very first entry would be 1 Corinthians 13. And that's because even if you're not familiar with the Bible, even if you've not read it much or don't know much of the scriptures, there's a good chance you have likely heard this passage. If you've ever been to a wedding, there's a good chance this passage was read. In fact, this chapter has often been called the love chapter. In fact, not just in the Bible, but in literature at large, this passage is often associated with love like no other. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul will write lyrically, poetically, beautifully in praise of love. The whole chapter is this praise of the virtue of love. Now, that being said, one of the first things that any preacher or any Bible teacher will tell you about this passage, is that while it regularly gets trotted out at weddings, while it is often read whenever love is in the air in the environments of romance and marriage, what any Bible preacher or teacher would tell you is that marriage nor romance is hardly at all what Paul had in mind when he first sat down to write 1 Corinthians 13. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, there were not wedding bells in the background. There was no love in the air. It wasn't a new young bride and her groom that Paul had in mind. In fact, romance and marriage was far distant a thought for Paul. In fact, let me tell you what was happening when the Apostle Paul, when St. Paul wrote the love chapter. He wrote the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, as part of a long letter that he was writing to, and catch this, his most gifted and his most problematic church at the same time. 
You see, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church was the most gifted church that Paul had ever planted, and also the most problematic, immature church that Paul had ever planted. You see, he planted this in the city of Corinth, and if you read back then, the city of Corinth was sort of a mix of Sin City and New York City mashed up together, meaning there was a sense in which Corinth was sort of lawless in all its ways. It was like what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, that kind of thing. There was no moral boundaries, no moral parameters. Everyone did whatever they wanted to do. That was Corinth. At the same time, Corinth was the hub of commerce and trade. And so you had people from everywhere coming to make it in Corinth. They were the leaders of their field, the top of their game, leaders of industry. And so you had gifted people and lawless people in the city of Corinth. And in the middle of that city, the Apostle Paul plants a church. And so what you find at the church in Corinth was this paradox. This paradox because it had people who were more fruitful more effective, more accomplished, more gifted, more capable, more talented, more able than any church that Paul had ever helped start. It was by far the most gifted, talented, able, effective church that Paul had ever started. So if you went to a Sunday service at Corinth, man, no doubt you were going to hear somebody in the pews tell you, brother, sister, I have a direct word from God for you. And it wouldn't be fake and it wouldn't be phony. It would be true. Like something no one else could know, they would know and tell you that would impact your life. If you were at service in Corinth, there was no doubt that if you had a question about the Bible, there was going to be someone in the pews that could explain to you the deep mysteries of God. You would never go home going, I don't understand that passage. Someone in Corinth would be able to explain it to you. If you were at a church service in Corinth, there was no doubt that there was this incredible faith in God present miracles would have been regularly happening. The sick would have been being healed. That wouldn't have been something you hoped for. That would be something you could expect. If you were at church in Corinth, you would leave knowing there was no doubt that God by His Spirit was present and at work at your church. That's one part true. And at the same time, at the exact same time, if you were at church in Corinth, you would have been at a church where there were more problems, more moral failures, more church discipline, more immaturity, more sin than any other church that Paul had ever started. It was at both the same time the most successful and the most immature church that Paul had ever started. One preacher made this really insightful point. He said it like this. He said, if we don't have as many problems as the church at Corinth had, if Seven Mile Road Church doesn't have as many problems as the church at Corinth had, It's because we're not nearly as successful as the church at Corinth was. What do we mean? Meaning, if we were nearly as successful as reaching lost people, people who didn't have moral boundaries, didn't go up around the Bible or Jesus, no parameters, who lived however they wanted to live, and they were flocking to Jesus and the church like the church of Corinth was, we would likewise them with them have all kinds of problems, all kinds of church discipline issues, all kinds of fires that we would constantly be putting out because the lost were coming. It's probably because we're nowhere nearly as successful as the church at Corinth that we don't have nearly half the problems that the church at Corinth had. The point is this, the church at Corinth isn't one to look down at, it's rather a really effective, really successful, killing it for Jesus and his mission church. And yet, 
And here's the pivot. And yet, for all its accomplishments, and for all its achievements, for all its talents, for all its giftings, for all its capabilities and abilities, for all that it had going, Corinth was at the same time missing what it needed most. Don't miss that. For all that it had, it was missing what it needed most. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13 to inform them, that's love. For all that they had, they were missing what they needed most. And the love chapter is to communicate to them what you need more than anything else you have is love. And so this chapter doesn't come to the background of wedding bells. This chapter actually comes as a rebuke to a church that is dangerously close from being unbelievably successful and totally meaningless. And because of that concern, he writes this letter and this chapter as what is initially a word of rebuke. A word of rebuke, and yet in the midst of this word of rebuke, we learn some things about love. I want to just show you two things from this passage that we learn about love. In this passage, Paul shows us first the necessity of love, and second, the person of love. In this chapter, he's going to show us the necessity of love, and second, the person of love. First, look with me at the necessity of love. This is verses 1 to 3. So if you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, that's where we'd be camped out in those 13 verses. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. This is what it says, the necessity of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Picture yourself in Corinth receiving this letter for the first time. And put yourselves in the shoes of a group of people that had till that moment prided themselves on all their spiritual gifts. That had sort of leveled against each other and had measured one another as sort of varsity and JV based on the spiritual giftings, talents, abilities, effectiveness they had for Jesus. And now to that church that had prided itself on its capabilities, its abilities, its talents, its gifts, Paul comes and the first words of 13 tell them, essentially, it doesn't matter what gifts you have, what you are, or what you do, if you don't have love, you are nothing. See, these words didn't produce warm, fuzzy feelings in their hearts. It cut their hearts. Paul was saying to them, you could have any and every gift, but if you don't have love, it does not matter. Listen to how he says it in the three verses. He says, look, you want to talk about tongues. He had just finished in chapter 12 talking about tongues. You want to talk about tongues? Okay, tongues. Say you can speak in tongues of men. Forget it. Say you can speak in the tongues of angels themselves. Say your mouth is speaking the language of heaven itself. If you do not have love, he says you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? You think of that. Right a moment ago, Sibby played 
on the drums and he beats it in a way that has melody and rhythm and it's beauty to your ears. I could go on that same thing. If I beat that thing, you would just shout noise. It's just noise, right? Or if I, if I stood to you right now and I was going to speak the gospel to you, I was going to tell you the mysteries of Christ. And if you could picture in my hand two loud cymbals that I'm clanging along as I tell you Jesus was born, you wouldn't be able to hear nothing. And so the passage is saying, the gospel cannot be heard over the noisy life of a loveless life. The gospel can't be heard from a loveless life. Whatever else you may say, you could be speaking in the language of heaven itself. If your life does not have love, no one can hear the good news of Jesus from it. A life without love can't be heard. You're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he goes on to say, and say I have prophetic powers. I could come to you and say, brother, sister, I have a word from the Lord for you. And it wouldn't be fake. It would be real and you would know it. And then he goes on. Do you notice the alls there? From verse 2 on. Say, I understand all mysteries. And I have all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains. So, there's nothing to understand that I don't understand. No mystery to know that I don't know. No faith to have that I don't have. I could tell problems to step out, and by faith they would step out. And he's saying, with all knowledge, all understanding, and all faith, you'd imagine you'd be varsity Christian. And he says, if you don't have love, you are nothing. Not just immature, you, you don't have anything. You're nothing in the eyes of God or in the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 3, if I give away all that I have. So you picture this radical generosity. Everyone wants to be committed to social justice. This is a kind of commitment that would give the shirt off your back. If I gave all that I have, right? You give to the poor till you have nothing left to give. This commitment to generosity. Or followed by this commitment to God. If I gave even my body to be burned. Meaning so committed to your beliefs, your faith, your doctrine. You would let them burn you at the stake. All that I have to the poor, all that I have for my beliefs, if you don't have love, you gain, he says, nothing. You, you hear what he's saying? In these three verses, he's essentially saying, whatever else a person has, if they don't have love, they don't have anything. Or for us, Seven Mile Road, whatever else a church has, if it doesn't have love, it doesn't have anything. Love is one of those things that if a church has it and doesn't have much else, it's fine. But it's one of those things that if it has everything but doesn't have love, it doesn't have anything. Paul is essentially pitting to you, if you had the choice between being incredibly gifted and effective or incredibly loving, there's no choice. You should choose loving. If we had a choice as a church between being incredibly gifted or incredibly loving, There'd be no choice. It's actually good news. If you're not super uber gifted, Paul is saying you still have access to the greatest thing that is most required. You can be loving because love is the greatest thing. Paul is saying whatever else a church has, we can have dynamite preaching. We can have perfect theology. We can have killer music. We can have perfect programs. And whatever else a church has... If it is not marked by, characterized by, evident as loving, then you have nothing, you gain nothing, you are nothing. You see, if you're hearing what Paul's saying, this is a really sober warning. 
It's a sober warning because it awakens us to the dreadful possibility, catch this, that you can be theologically brilliant, you can be gifted, you can be effective in ministry, you can be living morally, there can be little to no doubt that God is at work in you and through you, that people are helped by you, and you still not even be a Christian. It awakens us to the sober realization that you can be effective, gifted, talented, able. People can be helped around you and you still not even be Christian. In fact, this isn't, isn't this what the Lord Jesus said in his most famous sermon? In Matthew 7, as he's closing out the Sermon on the Mount, he says, In that last day, many will come to me and they will say to me what? Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Isn't that a sobering thing to wake up to? That you could prophesy in the name of Jesus and cast out demons in the name of Jesus and do mighty miracles in the name of Jesus and not have Jesus. Isn't it a sobering thing that you could love Christianity and miss Christ? That you could love ministry and miss Jesus. A sobering thing that you could be unbelievably gifted and fruitful and people helped around you and wowed by you. And if you have not love, you have nothing. Paul is trying to drive us to the necessity of love. How essential love is that without love you have nothing. This is why when they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? For anyone that's keeping count, they had tallied up around 613 commandments. 600 do this and don't do this. 613 different commandments. And yet Jesus didn't waste a breath to say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's when you begin to realize the entire summary of the law of God can be summed down to one word. It's love. It's love for God and love for people. That's the driving vision of everything God wanted to command in the world. And that's when you begin to realize to love, to live lawfully is to live lovingly. And to live lovingly is to live lawfully. That the entire vision of God's commands is to drive you to this one thing, to be loving towards God and towards others. Paul is going to try to drive home just how essential love is, and he tries to show you just how big it is by how he closes the chapter. Listen to me at how he wraps up chapter 13. Look at verse 8 and following. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. You see, what Paul's saying is he's trying to drive home the necessity of love, the importance of love, the essentiality of love. He's essentially saying here, everything else will come to an end. That's his point. Everything else will come to an end. When you get to heaven, there won't be any more prophecies. Can you imagine? Nobody will be in heaven saying, I have sort of a partial message from God to give to you. 
There'll be no more need for prophecies because we can ask the Lord. He'll be there right himself. There'll be no one trying to explain to you the mysteries of God. There will be no more preaching in heaven. There will be no more sermons. I will be without a job to do in heaven. Thank the Lord. There will be no one to say, I think this is what this passage means. There will be no need for sermons, no need for understanding, no need for knowledge, no need for prophecies. There will be no miracles in heaven. Who will there be to heal? Who will be sick that needs to be restored? You see, in that world, there will be no prophecies, no miracles, no signs, no wonders. You know why? When the entree comes, you have no need for appetizers. When the movie's playing, you don't need a preview anymore. When perfection comes... What need will there be for prophecy or miracles or signs or wonders? And Paul's point is all this stuff that you're bragging about, all this stuff you focus on will go away, and yet there will be one thing that remains. In that world, love will still be there. In that world, there'll be no prophecies. In that world, there'll be no miracles. There'll be no tongues. There'll be no signs. There'll be no wonders. But there will, Corinthians, be love. And you are bragging all day about all this stuff that will fade away. And you are missing the one thing that will shoot like an arrow through this world into the next. You're missing the one thing that is eternal while you harp on the things that are temporary. The things that are fleeting you find your worth in. The thing that matters you're missing. He's trying to say eternal, eternally love will be present. And so he's trying to drive home this simple point. This is the necessity of love. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. It does not matter what a person or a church has. If they don't have love, they don't have anything. So, we hear Paul in the love chapter teach us the essentiality of love, the, lo- the necessity of love. So then the question that it begs is, so then how do we become loving people? We get that we need to be loving. How do we become loving people? And here's the second thing I want to show you, and then we'll be done. Now Paul wants to look at the person of love. He showed you the necessity of love. Now he wants to show you the person of love. Look at verse 4 through 8. It says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, I'd ask you, what's your instinct with those verses? How do you read them? How do you see them? My guess, at least my instinct, my inclination, my temptation is to read this list and see it as a checklist, a list of behaviors for me to now go from here and work on. Do you see it that way? You read it and you go, okay, that's what love is. Love is necessary. I'm supposed to be loving, so here's what I got to do. I got to work on this, right? I got to be more patient. I I could stand to be a bit more kind. I work on being a little less irritable a little less resentful, I'll try not to boast as much. We hear this list, and we go after it, and we go, okay, here's what I have to do. It's almost like you can picture yourself sitting at a wedding ceremony. As this list is read, the butterflies start in your heart. You see the virtue of love, and you are at best inspired. 
inspired to be this way, to do this way, to live this way. And yet, as you keep going through each one of these, catch you, mind you, 15 descriptions of love. 15, and you'll notice in the original language, it's 15 verbs, which just point out to us love is not less than feeling, but more than feeling. Not less than an emotion, but more than an emotion. 15 action verbs. In this description, he's telling you not just what love is like, but what love does, what love doesn't do. This is why you can love your enemy, because it's not just a feeling or an emotion. It's what you will do or won't do. But you get these 15 descriptions of love. And though you start off in the list inspired, as you wade through all 15, eventually the list crushes you. Eventually the list falls on you. It dashes you. I listened to this one preacher named Halim Su, and he said this. He said, it starts off that we read verse 4, and we see the sort of small foothills of love. We hear of it described as patience and kind, uh, as, as not boasting. So we see these foothills, and our immediate response is to try and run into them, to try and climb them. But inevitably, as we wade through these three verses, we come to some mountaintops, some high cliffs that we can't scale. Look at verse 7, for example. In the summary of it all, you can, you can try and climb over the hill of patience or kindness, but then you get to 7 and listen to these mountain peaks. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, you get four alls that sort of land on you, one after another, crushing you. How are you going to work on enduring everything, bearing everything, never giving up, never quitting? This is the way love is. How, how good do you do with that list when you run into seven? Uh, love always endures, always hopes the best of someone, always believes the best of someone, never quits, always bears everything. Love never fails, love never stops. One preacher said it like this, you're getting a picture of true love, and in this definition of love, you're beginning to see if you have ever, in a relationship, given up on someone, if you've ever given up on someone, it's because at the end of the day, that person failed to give you something that you wanted, whatever it was. You had a demand in your heart. Maybe it's for gratitude. Maybe it's for reciprocal love. Maybe it's for appreciation. Maybe it's for affection. You had something that they owed you. And if you give up on them, you show that ultimately what you wanted was not them, but what you could gain from them. Because what true love says is true love loves a person not for what you can get from them, but for them. I heard one preacher say it's almost like if you say a sentence that says, I love you because, no matter what you fill at the end of that because ends true love. Because if I love you because you're funny, because you're so sweet, or whatever it is, what happens when you're not so funny, when you're not so sweet? The only way true love works is I love you for you. I love you for you. That's the way love works. Now, of course, there will be times where love calls you to take a stand or, or break a relationship. In the face of violence, in the face of those kinds of things, there might be a place where love, it's not weak or passive, requires an even greater stand. But the point here is this. When we love someone for what we can get out of them, I mean, you think of this. If the tables were turned 
and you knew that someone loved you because of what they could get out of you, you would be repulsed at that. You would be, you would be disgusted by that because you would see that they're not treating you like a human being. They're treating you like an object. When you love someone for what you can get out of them, they are objectified. They're dehumanized. You don't love them as a human being anymore. We demand that we be loved unconditionally, simply for who we are, warts and all. And yet, this chapter is showing to us, okay, then how do you treat God or others when you don't get what you want? When it's not reciprocated? When kindness isn't met with kindness, then our love shrivels up, our love dries, our love turns in on itself, our love protects ourselves. We demand unconditional love, but we can't give it to God or to anyone. You see, rather than bells going off and inspiring us, this list, as you wade through it, crushes us. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Just look at four through seven. And as you're inspired and as you're ready to run into those hills and those mountains, would you simply put your name where it says love? And you read it that way. I'll do it for you. A J is patient and kind. A J does not envy or boast. I have no idea why you're chuckling. A J is not arrogant or rude. A J does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A J bears all things. A J believes all things. A J hopes all things, endures all things. A J never fails. You can't hear it without smiling. You can't hear it without chuckling because it's a joke. You can't scale these mountains. It's a joke when it falls on you. You're crushed by them. You're dashed by them. You see, when the Corinthians first heard this section, they weren't inspired. They were cut to the heart. You know why they were cut to the heart? Because in this passage, Paul isn't even actually trying to give you an exhaustive definition of love. There's lots that could be said about love that's not in 1 Corinthians 13. Do you, you get that? This isn't an exhaustive, comprehensive definition of love. In fact, what Paul is actually doing is these exact same things he has said in other parts of the letter that the Corinthians weren't doing. He says, love does not boast. You know why? Because in chapter 2, they were boasting. He says, love doesn't insist on its own way because they were insisting on their own way. Love keeps no record of wrongs because in chapter 6, they were suing each other for wrongs. You see, he is going through this list and pointing to them over and over again how out of step with love they were. They didn't hear the list and get warm, fuzzy feelings, and get inspired, they got the list, and they were crushed. They were shown that they were, in fact, so very unloving that for all their gifts and for all their abilities, they were dangerously close to being nothing and nobodies and a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So then, if Paul isn't giving us a checklist First and foremost, for some behaviors for us to work on, what is he giving us first? If we can't simply scale the heights of 1 Corinthians 13 and just decide to be loving, what can we do? Would you look with me one last time at the language of 1 Corinthians 13, these words, these verbs from 4 to 7, and would you notice that here, at least, they're not phrased as commands. 
He's not saying, go be patient, go be loving, go be kind, go stop envying. Instead, Paul's goal for the Corinthians and for us is to become more loving, but to do that, essentially, here's what he does. He says, here's love. Look at it. Look at love. Love does this. Love does that. Love is this way. Love is that way. He's essentially saying before calling you to do love, he's calling you to look at love, to see love, to encounter love, to experience love, to meet love, to be embraced by love. He's, he's saying it this way. In fact, look at how he says it. The way love is, is described by Paul, Paul personifies love. He turns it into a person. Right till 1 to 3, he was speaking in the first person. If I do this, if I do that, if I do this. In verse 4, it turns and he speaks of love, but he personifies love so that love does this and love does that and love does this. He speaks of love as a person. So now you ask, who is this person of love? Now, it's not me. We already tried my name in the list. And I suspect it's not you if we tried your name in the list. So who is this person of love? And that's when we go, what the Bible tells us about love is that there is one name that could be inserted and we wouldn't laugh. There's one name that could be read and we wouldn't chuckle. That there's one person in the Bible who has climbed the foothills of 1 Corinthians 13 and scaled the mountaintops of verse 7 and stood at the very top of it all there is one who climbed a mount even called Calvary and wasn't dashed by love's demands, but was dashed for love's demands. Wasn't dashed by the weight of love, was dashed in love. If you want to know, if you sat in front of a computer screen and typed in, what does the Bible say about love? The Bible says that God is love. And the Bible goes on to say that love took on flesh. Love incarnated. Meaning love put on meat and bones and skin. And love took on a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the Bible would say, Jesus is love in the flesh. You want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. See his life, see his death, see his resurrection, see his ascension, see his second coming, see his rule, see his reign, and you will see love. Love in the flesh is Jesus Christ, and there is one who loves you unconditionally, loves you as your soul desires and demands to be loved. Every other person in the world perhaps loves you for what can get out of you. But I can assure you, when you see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, God in the flesh, love in the flesh, when you see him hanging on the cross, dying for you, Bearing all things, including the sin of the world and the wrath of God. Enduring all things in love. When you see him in your place for your sins, I can promise you, he didn't do that because he could get something out of you. He didn't do that because he needed you to reciprocate and he was going to get something out of you. As though something was lacking in him and you completed him. It's not because he was needing affection and you would give him the affection. And if he doesn't get it from you, he's going to turn away from you. He had nothing to get from you except you. You. He loved you for you. Died for you for you. Here's the one person who is love. And in fact, would you hear 1 Corinthians 13? As I think Paul would have wanted the Corinthians to hear, and I know he would want us to hear. 
Jesus is patient and kind. And would we not who know him give our loud amen to that? How long-suffering has Jesus Christ been with us? Not just after we found him, but even before we found him. How many years of sin did Jesus put up with in the people that he loved? And even after we've come to know him, how long-suffering has Jesus been with us? Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Isn't that good news for us? When you go to him the 10,000th time for the 10,000th same sin over again, that he's not irritated by you. When you go to him at 2 in the morning to confess your worry and your anxiety, he's not irritated by you. He's not irritable. He's not resentful. He doesn't have a tally mark of your wrongs. He doesn't keep a record. He has chosen to forget. He remembers them no more. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends, never fails. See, here's the point. In all the places the Corinthians had failed when it comes to love, and we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus has loved. And here's what the Bible would say about love. It's only in seeing, in encountering, in meeting, in experiencing, in being embraced by the person of love that we can become loving. It's only when I won't be patient with you without thinking of what I can get from that until I experience the patience of Jesus. And when I experience the patience of Jesus, then it can move me to be patient. I won't love those who don't love me back. I won't be kind to those who aren't kind back until I hear God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for those who were kind to him. He died for those who were unloving, at enmity with him, unkind to him. And it's only as my heart is gripped by that reality that I will move out in kindness, even towards those who are not kind to me. Even when I will love a person not for what I can get from them, because Jesus loved me, not for what he could get out of me. Love me for me, and so we will love others for others. It's the love of Christ, embracing the person of love that can transform us to become people of love. So, what does the Bible say about love? The Bible says this, love is necessity. It's eternal. Everything else will fade. It will shoot through into the world to come. And so we need to be loving people. But in order to become loving people, we need the person of love. We need to experience, be embraced by, see, have that love drive into our hearts that it might transform us to be loving people as well. Let's pray together. Jesus, together we confess. We have no boasting, no pride in our own. We have no leg to stand on. We simply confess to you that we are unloving towards you, towards others. We have never climbed the heights of pure and true love. There are ulterior motives in us. There are ulterior motives for why we do what we do. We have a hard time loving those who are unlovely or unlovable or unkind. We have an impossible time loving our enemies. We confess to you that we are self-centered and above all, we love ourselves. 
And we pray that you would embrace us with your love in our sin, that we might be transformed, that we might be changed, that we might love in this world as Jesus does. Come help us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.